Morning. We're working our way of, through this series of messages on the book of John. And if this was chapter 1 in John, and all the way at that end would be chapter... Say again. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Over here would be chapter 13, right at that little tape there. This would be chapter 17, all the way up to here. Right? And then this would be like 18, 19, 20, and 21. Okay? Now I'm going on a limb here. I think there's only 21 chapters. But anyways, that's the last one I can remember. So, um, we've been parking here for a while on these chapters, chapters 13 to 17, in between those black tapes there. That refer- those five chapters refer to which hours? Last five hours that Jesus had with his disciples in that upper room, right? The first four of those chapters end with, and I told you these things so that in me you would have peace. In this world you have trouble, but in me you can have peace. That's where he ends that chapter, and then there's a whole other chapter dedicated to what? Chapter seven, 17 is dedicated to Jesus' prayer. Is that not astounding? To think that Jesus prayed. If Jesus, who was... He was man, but he was fully God at the same time, prayed. Do you think you and I, who are man and very weak man, or woman, or however, do you think we should pray? Good answer. Would you be interested in hearing Jesus pray? Can you just just picture that you're one of his disciples? Would you be intrigued when someone you know, and maybe they didn't have full understanding yet, but Peter already knew this is the, the Son of God. Would it be curious or interesting or intriguing to know how does he pray? We know that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. But in John 17, he obviously was praying with his disciples because John later recorded it. And this is how it begins. And if you think about that whole chapter, the first couple of verses, the first five verses or so, are, are Jesus praying for or about himself? And then he shifts to praying for his disciples. We're going to pick that apart a little bit today. And then he goes on to pray for all those in the future who are going to believe. And that includes us today. That's profound. But we're going to pick out the first, from verse 1 to 19 today. After Jesus had said this, which is that famous verse, John 16, 33, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. If you're hearing those words for the first time, or if you put yourself into the mindset of somebody who's never heard that before, that actually sounds crazy. Like, Christians must be a little bit nuts. You really think you're going to live forever? Yes. Yeah, we do. Why? Because of who Jesus is and what he did. 
That sounds absolutely crazy, but I want to explain. The, the next verse goes on to explain that a little bit more. And Jesus, in his prayer, he says in verse 3, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. We've talked about this lots, lots in this series of uh, messages on John and we're up, up to 17 already. But Jesus often points to that he didn't just start on earth. He actually was in heaven and then came to earth. And now he knows that he is about to die and after his death he will be resurrected and he's going to go back to heaven. That is where we get our confidence in us going to heaven. But just to clarify, Jesus was in heaven, then came down to earth, spent some time with his disciples growing up, and then with his disciples, teaching them to, that they would be able to go and spread the uh, good news and so on. Then he dies and he's resurrected and he goes back to heaven. That's different than you and I. Jesus is the creator. He started in heaven. He's the creator who came down and then went back up to heaven. We start where? We start right here. We never were in heaven. We are created beings who have the hope. Not just like across your fingers hope it's true hope. We have the confidence and assurance and the same confidence that Jesus had to know that after we die, we too will go to heaven because of who Jesus is. We know from other passages of Scripture, like Romans 10, verses 9 to 10, for instance, that those who acknowledge Jesus is Lord out loud with their mouth and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, there's a promise associated with that. It says, we will be what? We will be saved. In other words, we have the promise of eternity in heaven to have eternal life instead of facing eternity in hell. And here in this passage, Jesus is essentially saying the same thing with a little bit different wording. He's, he's saying to know Jesus is to have eternal life. Last week we made two really bold statements, and if you didn't hear it, you should go back to clarify so that you'll have understanding of why. Now I'm just going to go a little bit faster through them. But if you're wanting to know more about that, you could go back and listen to last week's sermon. But John 17 verse 3 supports the first one of the bold statements that we made last week. We made this statement. You will not experience closeness with Jesus without an attitude of listening in your prayer. And John 17 3 clarifies that because knowing Jesus is more than just an intellectual activity that happens in your brain. It's more than just having information about Jesus. It's actually referring to a two-way relationship with Jesus. We can know him. We can gnosko him. We can get to know him, appreciate him, and he becomes real and relevant in our everyday, day-to-day lives. And people who know Jesus like this they not only experience things like supernatural peace, supernatural joy, but they also experience comfort 
supernaturally from God. They're receiving it from Jesus. They receive encouragement from Jesus, just like Paul did when he was in prison. They receive guidance from Jesus, just like Philip did with the Ethiopian eunuch. They receive empowerment from Jesus, just like Timothy did with the spiritual gifts. We receive things from him. But those who love Jesus and know him are also spurred on to do things for him. It's a two-way relationship. A little bit, we're spurred on to do things because we love Jesus, a little bit like in a good marriage relationship. If you're not married or your relationship is not good, maybe this will take some imagination. (laughs) But in a good marriage, people give gifts to each other, not because they're forced to, and that could also be happening, but that wouldn't be a good marriage. But anyway, so you, you give gifts to each other because you love each other. Maybe flowers or something else that just says, there's actually no reason for me to give this to you other than I just love you. People do those kinds, people who know Jesus do those kinds of things for him. There's a story of that in Matthew 26, where a woman went out and bought an expensive jar of perfume and she anointed Jesus with it. She emptied that whole thing out on Jesus. From the outside perspective, you might think, wow, that woman wasted all that money on that. But those kinds of things are what people do who know Jesus and love him. Those are the same kinds of things that we will do for Jesus if we know him. And the result of knowing Jesus is eternal life. And then Jesus goes on, and in verse 6, he's going to shift now to praying for his disciples. He says to his father, I have revealed you to those, he's talking about the disciples, whom you gave me out of the world. They, disciples, were yours. You gave them to me, and and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you. There he says that again, I came from you. Jesus came from heaven, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. Isn't that astounding that Jesus would take the time to pray for his disciples? As though it wasn't enough to completely pour himself out, empty himself out of all of his godness, if you will. Now he even is going farther to intercede and pray for his disciples. Romans 8 says the same thing, by the way. Jesus is actually interceding for us. The Holy Spirit does the same. And this is specifically about the disciples, but by implication applies to us, and Jesus is actually going to clarify that it's us even at the end of this prayer. But anyways, he says, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Now again, to be clear, Jesus is praying for his disciples to be one as 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 what as we are one who's we 
Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Even if Jesus wouldn't pray this specifically about us when he prays for all believers, this would apply to us by implication because he's praying this for his disciples. Just so you know, in two weeks when we continue to preach through this prayer, Jesus will pray for that exact same level of unity in all believers. That's you and me. The the desire for Jesus is for there to be so much unity amongst Christians that we actually reflect the unity between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you know even the smallest thing about the Trinity, they actually operate in perfect unity. How do you think we're doing right now? We're going to talk about that more in two weeks. But I'll tell you this. Just knowing what Jesus said right there should get all of us on our knees and say, Jesus, I am sorry. And we should pray that prayer before we try to tell Jesus why our opinion is correct. Something is broken. And Jesus is not wrong. Then he goes on in verse 12. He says, While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, Jesus says to his father. But I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Do you notice the confidence that Jesus has when he says, Father, I'm coming, I'm coming to you now. Can you pick up on that confidence? It's like he knows exactly what he's talking about, right? And he does, to be fair, he is God, he was in heaven, and he knows he's going back, and so I get it. He has a level of confidence, maybe that would be Uh, something beyond what we can have. But do you know this? You and I know what happens next in this story. He is going to die. But then what? He's going to be raised to life. That fact that he was raised to life again and gives and appears to his disciples over and over, appears, appears to hundreds of different people, and still gives evidence even up till today that he is alive. That actually, you know what that does when we face death? It gives us actually the same confidence that he has. That changes the way a person sees death. If you're a believer. Verse 14, he says, I have given them your word, and... The world has hated them. Can we just read that one more time? And just in case, if you're new to Pansy Chapel, (laughs) this is a goofy thing we do. Just, we all just read the yellow words together. It helps us to get engaged with what we're reading. 
I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. Following Jesus, by the way, does not allow you to then, or you should not think that you somehow are going to skip out on the troubles in this world. That would actually go directly against what Jesus just said before this prayer. In the end of chapter 16, he said, you're going to have trouble in this world. And now when he's praying to the Father, he's not praying that somehow he will just quickly, oh, as soon as you're a believer, we just make everything perfect for you and then we whisk you to heaven. That is not what Jesus is expecting. It's not the design. He actually purposely leaves his disciples in this world. They're going to face trouble, but in this world they can influence this world for Jesus. Satan is the one, the evil one, who wants to come and steal and kill and destroy. He would love to drag your soul all the way to hell. And he will do whatever he can to make that happen. Which fills me with a lot of appreciation that Jesus is praying that we'll be protected. Not protected from trouble. He promised that we're going to have trouble. We're not protected from trouble. We're protected from the evil one who wants to drag us to hell. That protection, are you thankful? If you have any sense of eternity, and I know we don't fully grasp it, but he did put eternity in our hearts. Whatever sense we have of understanding eternity, we should see some appreciation when Jesus is praying for your and my protection from Satan. But let me ask you this question. This is a little easier. Why, why would the world hate Jesus' disciples? They hated Jesus first. Jesus' disciples were identifying with Jesus. If they were doing well, they would live like Jesus. They would teach the same things that Jesus taught. And if they're going to do that, the world is going to hate them because the world hated Jesus for doing exactly those things. And so the question is, you have to then ask, okay, so if the disciples are going to be hated because they're living like Jesus or identifying with Jesus, why would the world hate Jesus? Who hates somebody who does good? Nobody logical. Like typically people don't hate people who just, just do good. But let me give you a clue why the world hates Jesus. John 7, 7, Jesus is talking. This is going back quite a bit farther to over here somewhere when we talked about this. But here's a clue. Jesus is talking to his skeptical brothers, and he says to them, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that its works are evil. You think the world hated Jesus because he, he fed hungry people? You think the world hated Jesus because he healed sick people? You think the world hated Jesus because he befriended sinners? And there's some religious people that maybe did. 
Do you think the world hated Jesus because he poured out his life and gave everything and sacrificed it all to come and love us? Typically, the world would be okay with that. But Jesus is not only love. He is what? He is also truth. And anyone who comes to him has to come on his terms. He is the cornerstone of the building. And whatever shape that stone is, you and I don't fit. And we have to be broken and chiseled so that we'll fit his mold. That's uncomfortable. Jesus defined what sin was. He held the definition of sin. He defined what is evil. And he confronted it. And that will get you hated. And when you approach him, he did love, he did heal, feed. But we have to approach him on his terms. And from the world's perspective, that will get you hated. And then verse 16, he says, they are not of this world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them. What does that word sanctify mean? I love it. Someone's quick on the draw. It means set apart. In other words, what's another word that comes to your mind when you, just a one word that you think of when you think of sanctify? Holy. Exactly right. That's what it means. Sanctify means to be holy, to be set apart. Right? And we've used this example on January 16 when we were talking about Bill C4 and what the Bible says about that. We talked about, in part, what does it mean to live out holy sexuality, right? You guys remember? If this stage is the, the line, if, if jumping forward from here would be sin, and standing up here is not sin, and this is the line in between those two, what is it, where would I stand if I wanted to be holy? Back here somewhere. That's what it means to be holy, not to just figure out where the line is and try and stand on the stage with my toes dipping over. Holy means over here, sanctify them. Sanctify them by the truth, Jesus prayed. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Those words in yellow that say your word refer to what? The Bible. Right from Genesis 1 all the way through to the end of Revelation. Your word, Jesus said, is what? Truth. It's a little secret. I hated grammar in school, okay? <laughs> That's, I just never saw the point of that, and I did, didn't like it. Reading Scripture has given me some appreciation for grammar. Do you know that? Even the basic levels of it, I want to show you something here. It's a quick grammar lesson that is going to show you a powerful truth right out of this verse. But help me out with this, okay? Really simple. What's an adjective? 
A describing word, okay? There's a couple people. There we go. What's a noun? A person, place, or thing, okay? So here, that word truth, that's in yellow. If you wanted to learn whether that's an adjective or a noun, you could do that by using an app like Bible Hub or something like that that has an interlinear Bible, and you can look in the Greek and you'll see. Is it a noun or is it an adjective or whatever? It is a noun. Okay? So let's follow this. If it was an adjective, then it would simply be describing that the Bible is full of true statements because it would be describing the Bible as true. That in itself would already be powerful, but Jesus is going way farther than that with this statement. He is saying it is a noun, it is a thing. In other words, not only are the statements in the Bible true, but the Bible is the standard of truth by which everything else must be compared and tested. That is a bold statement. That is what Jesus is saying. He says, your word is truth. Knowing that God's word, the Bible, is truth, backs up the second of the two bold statements that we made last week. And that statement was this. If you have access, remember the first statement was, you are missing out on closeness with Jesus if you don't have an attitude of listening in your prayer. The second bold statement is this. If you have access to a Bible and you don't regularly read it, don't even bother listening in prayer because then you are only opening yourselves up to a world of deceit. There is never going to be any other writings that have the authority and infallibility of Scripture. The Bible gives us the universal and moral will of God. It defines sin. It tells us the requirements of salvation and so on. And because it is God's Word is truth, if you want to understand a piece of it, the best way to do that is to interpret that piece with what? Another piece of Scripture. Because God's Word is truth. The whole thing. So let me ask you a really easy question. In order to do that well, what will we have to do? Read it. Know it. Study it. Ruminate on it. Right? Do you know what the word ruminate means? Cows do it when they eat some grass and like half an hour later they're still chewing. Yeah, that's ruminating. That's how we're supposed to actually handle Scripture. They ruminate on it. And you'll realize when we begin to understand, we begin to appreciate that scripture for ourselves and recognize it as truth. How do you do that? The best way to study scripture is to block out time on a regular basis when you're not going to be running off to work, not running off to watch TV, or check the news, or check what the latest thing is that somebody posted on Instagram, or to play a video game. 
or to make breakfast or lunch or supper or whatever other household chores you have to do. And by the way, all those things that I just listed, none of them are bad. You catch that? But every one of them can be a distraction from reading God's Word. Watch out for this. Just think about this. Sometimes in our... We know that we should read God's Word and study it. And yet sometimes we hold our breath when we read it because if we're honest, what we're really wanting to do is run off and read the news or, or run off and get some other work done. But we're like, oh, I should read God's Word, so I'm going to... Okay, just read it through. Okay, okay, now I, can, now I can go do what I really wanted to do. If that's how you and I feel, that should be a red flag. And if that is something that you're tempted with, block out time to give yourself enough time that you're not going, oh, it's almost 8.30. 8.27, I don't only have three more minutes, and you're just thinking... That's, you're, there's no way you're ruminating on anything. <laughs> Block out till 9 o'clock or 9.30. Then at least you'll be free till like quarter after 9 until you start looking at your watch. And here's what I've noticed. Not everything in Scripture has the same level of applicable value. Okay? That is, that is true. I'm going to explain a bit. But... Here's what I want to say. Even seemingly small things can guard against deception. I'll give you a little example. Suppose you're reading in your Bible, you're reading about the story where the Israelites were crossing the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14, and you're, you're reading this and you all of a sudden realize, hey, it says like five times in that chapter, it says what time of day it was when they crossed. I wonder why. What you could do is take a pen or something, a little, I found out this morning after the first service that there's such a thing as a highlighters specifically made for your Bible. I didn't know that. Anyway, learned that this morning. You could take something like that and you could note, huh, there's five times right there and it says the same time of the day. Is that going to change what you do this afternoon? Probably not. But you know what it will change? If you're ever watching a movie about Moses and they try to depict what it might have looked like when they crossed the sea, and they got the day, time of day wrong, it's going to be an instant red flag. Like, you know, in a football game, like you might watch this afternoon, in a football game, flag, the ref throws a flag. It's because he knows there's something wrong. That might start happening if you read your Bible, and you know, hey, the guy who made this movie, he didn't read his Bible. And it'll actually have ramifications because if you didn't catch that, it might just lead to one more thing and one more thing. And, and if you're not careful, even small things like that can lead to deception. Or maybe when you're reading through your Bible, maybe there's a certain topic or a theme you want to study. You can choose those. You don't have to just mindlessly read through it. You can choose a, a, a topic to study as you read through it. I'll give you an example. One of the ones that I picked, and you don't have to pick this one, this is just an example, but I've noticed that the Bible says quite a few times that it's very important that we continue or remain. And in other words, it's very important how we finish that counts. 
not only how we start, it's actually more important how we finish. And so, one of the years I read through my Bible, I just thought, man, that is just like burning in me all the time. So I'm just going to note every time it says that, but there's not enough room in my Bible to write a big paragraph every time I come across a verse that says that. So I just kept a list on the side, a different list. And then as I read through my Bible, this happened to be number five of the themes I was thinking about. And I just put a little five and circled the five beside that verse. Now when I read my Bible and I see a little five there, oh yeah, that talks about it's important to finish well. And I learned through that that the Bible says that about 75 times. And you know what that guards you from? That guards you from this false idea that saying a prayer one time is all you need. Or maybe you want to study a complex passage of Scripture like Matthew 24. Okay? And here's a picture. This is maybe not great. But this maybe will give you spark some ideas. This is a picture out of my Bible. This one right here. From Matthew 24. And I can see when I glance at Matthew 24 in my Bible, I can see very quickly, and you can't see it because the, the, the letters are small, the, the whatever, the, you won't be able to see it. But I can see at a glance, ah, there's five times that it says, on those two pages, that it says Jesus commands people, urges them, exhorts them to be ready when we get into the end times. That's what Matthew 24 is about. There's an order to the events listed in Matthew 24, and I just... They're indicated by the words then, or immediately after, those days. And I just circled that with a purple pen. I circled those. And there's four times in Matthew 24 that word deception is used. And that really is impactful to me because there's an increasing amount of deception that's coming at the end times. I put take a blue square around those words deception. There's four of them. Some of the verses in Matthew 24, for instance, here, give specific instructions of exactly how to live during those days. I underline those. And there's other verses in that same passage that talk about the number of nations that will hate Jesus' followers and see his second coming. I put a black square around those. The definition of love in, in verse 12, it just says love. But I don't know at a glance, maybe some of you have a really good memory and you know, oh yeah, that's agape love. But I wrote that there so I don't have to wonder, oh, was it philia, was it eros, or was it storge? Oh no, it's agape. It makes a difference. I might, you, the green highlights on that page represent, uh, are highlighted are the word kingdom, which Matthew uses like 54 times in his book. That's significant because it's not about a kingdom here, it's about a kingdom there. And all these things. By the way, there's just seven things quickly mentioned. None of those seven things are replaced by the footnotes in your Bible or even a study Bible. A study Bible will have even more things to say about this passage. But even the best study Bibles don't glean every possible thing that you can get out of a passage of Scripture. And in addition to the study Bible, and in addition to the things that are highlighted on there already, 
Maybe you're reading through that passage of Scripture and the Lord gives you a rhema word. Maybe one of those verses jumps off that page, it hits you in the face, and you know actually there is something for me to do this afternoon because of what Jesus said. You might want to underline that with a different color of pen. You could even put a date beside there, and the next time you read your Bible, you'll be filled with praise. And you'll think, Lord, I remember when, when you spoke to me and I went and did whatever, and Lord, thank you for doing that. That might actually fill you with praise. And sometimes, maybe having some marks on your page, if they're, if they're done intentionally and done well, you know what happens? Somebody else is leading a study or something, and they say, let's talk about Matthew 24. You open up your Bible, at a glance, you can't see all of the truth that is uh, lessons that could be learned out of that chapter, but at a glance, you already have some powerful things that that scripture talks about. Or if you're like me, maybe this is just for weak-minded people, could be, but if you're like me and you're thinking, okay, I know there was, uh, you know, a couple weeks later, I know there was this passage of scripture that talked about deception. Ah, oh, where was it? Somewhere in the Gospels. And I'm like, and then you're thinking, um, and I'm sure I put a blue square around it, and it was on the left side. And you go flip, 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 flip. Oh yeah, right here. That's actually beneficial. But when you're considering to make a mark in your Bible, don't do it hastily. But if you take the time to think about before you ever put your pen in your Bible. I'll just go back to that word deception again. You know what happens when, when I saw that word deception in there, and then I see it again, and I get, I'm starting to get this feeling like, wow, it seems like that word deception is in this chapter a lot. What's God saying here? And then I want to go make a mark in there. What do I do before I make the mark? I reread it because I don't want to accidentally make a mark somewhere. In, in my, you can't even see it there, but I actually put little notes there that says like it's four times. This one says one out of four, two out of four, three out of four, four out of four, and it tells me right away, oh yeah, there's, in case I'm just reading this one verse, I realize, oh no, it actually talks about deception four times. But before you ever note that, you have to reread. That's what actually, what it means to ruminate. Don't just whip through it as fast as you can so you can rush off to the, watch the news. Ruminate on it. The goal is not to mark up your Bible. The goal is not to doodle in your Bible. That would be treating it with disrespect. The goal is to ruminate and study, to apply it to your life, and protect yourself from deceit by being familiar with what the word of truth God's word, the truth, says. So if you guys have a photographic memory, this may not be quite as applicable to you, but for the rest of us, I find it helpful to have pens that are really fine-pointed and a variety of colors. I learned this the hard way. When I started making a note or two in my Bible, I just used a regular ballpoint pen, and I found out, A, they often leave a little dot of ink, and then it, you close your Bible, and then it leaves a smudge. Anyone else? <laughs> or, or the word is just ends up being too big and then you realize, 
it's probably not the last time you're going to read your Bible and something's going to stand out to you and you might want to put a note there again next time. And I realized, man, I should have started off with a finer point pen. <laughs> I'm a slow learner. Anyways, I found some. I want to give some away. I've been using these for the last couple of months. And they're really, really fine point pens. They don't, they don't um, uh, smudge or bleed when you write. And they're so fine point that you will not want to write yourself a long note with these. But they're excellent for making a small mark in your Bible, either a cross-reference that you want to add, that maybe your study Bible doesn't have, or a note of a theme or something like that. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to give these away. Here's four here. There's a, a blue, purple, red, and black. And here I've just got a black and a blue. I'm going to give these to two different people. And it's not going to be fair, okay, because there's more than two people here. Sorry if you think life is fair. I'm going to make it even more unfair. I'm going to say this. I know that if I just ask for a show of hands, who would like to have pens to, to write in their Bible because they want to study it? I bet you the first hands up in the air will be from teenagers and kids. And as much as I absolutely love that, I wish adults would do the same. And so I'm going to say this. I'm going to give these pens away to somebody who is over 18. Because I know that if you're under 18 and you wish right now, you're like, oh, come on, I would have actually wanted one of those pens. Yeah, you know what? Your parents can buy you these pens. They're at Staples. And parents can buy their... You, even if you paid more money for a pen than you think is worth paying for a pen, you could buy five of them, and still that's a pretty cheap gift, actually if you like buying gifts for people so that they'll study their Bible. If you are over 18 and you'd like to have these four pens, red, blue, purple, and black, just raise your hand. Ready? I'm going to throw them. You guys ready? Okay, uh, my apologies if I hit somebody in the head. Oh, that was pretty good. Two, blue and a black. Raise your hand if you if you like them. Oh, they're going right in the back there. Oh. That's why I don't play baseball. <laughs> as good as it is to mark your Bible, read it, study, and ruminate on it, some people, and engage with God's Word, and apply it to your lives. Some people might be asking and thinking this question already, but hold on a second. I thought we were supposed to rely on the Holy Spirit. Isn't he a teacher and a reminder, the anointing that teaches us? Absolutely, yes, he is. And you should live and act in a way that appreciates that. But that does not absolve us from doing our best. 2 Timothy 2.15 says this. It says... <laughs> Do your best. I'm going to read it one more time. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. And there, this is like a guitar string. If you take a guitar string and you hang it just from this end, or if you took that same string and you hung it from this end, 
It doesn't play any music. In order for it to play music, you have to do what? You have to hold it in tension. It's the same as this. If you just hold that string from one side and you say, and you realize this, you could spend every waking minute for the rest of your lives studying and reading and memorizing and ruminating on God's Word. And you will actually still not be able to comprehend all of the truths that are in it because they are spiritually discerned. You need the Holy Spirit to open your mind to be able to understand them. That is exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 13 and 14. They're spiritually discerned. So we can't only study. Otherwise, that string is not going to make any music. But if we take that string and only hold it on the other side, and we realize, oh, it's just the Holy Spirit. I am now absolved from anything I have to do, and I get lazy and don't do my best, I am going to open myself up to a world of deceit. That needs to be held in tension like that. Let's pray. Jesus, <laughs> Lord, we get to know you. We get to experience you, Lord, and understand your love and your hope and your joy and your peace. It actually changes us, Lord. We transform into being a little bit more like you. Thank you, Jesus, that we get to know you and that you are eternal life. Lord, please help us to never push away from the fact that that is a two-way personal relationship that we get to have with you. We want to know you, Jesus. We want our hearts to start feeling like your heart feels and to see things how you see them more and more. And Jesus, thank you that you have miraculously preserved your written word, your word of truth, that we can investigate, read, and study it. Jesus, please give us a desire to do that. Give us that same kind of hunger that those Christians who know you but don't have access to that word, and they suddenly get it, they eat it up like a hungry person. Help us, Lord, to have some of that same hunger that we will not take your word for granted because we have so many copies, but help us to make use of those copies and put them to work and be intentional with how we handle your word of truth and let us do our best, Lord. Not just half-hearted. Jesus, we love you. You are so good, so generous. Amen.